0: Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. You know, this is a great day. and We have to look forward to, I think, November the 3rd. We get get out and vote and start early voting on October 27th in D.C. And Miha Josefa is our guest today. He is executive director of the Cooperative Fund of New England. Good morning, Miha. Good morning, Vernon, and thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here, for taking our time to do this. I know you're very, very busy. And I looked on your webpage, and I see that your mission is to work for economic, social, and racial justice. And so you've been doing this, what now, for how long have you all been in existence? Yeah, the Cooperative Fund of New England was formed in 1975. So this is our 45th year, if my math is right. Yeah, okay. 45 years you've been working for economic, social, and racial justice by advancing community-based, cooperatives, and democratically owned or managed enterprises, with a preference for assisting cooperatives in low-income communities. That's fantastic. So you all have been doing this much before COVID-19 uncovered the racism in the U.S. or George Floyd's murder just really highlighted it. But have those kinds of events helped you all to take? To look at doing things differently or change how you're looking at how to create economic, social, and racial justice. Yeah, so so
1: it's really interesting. You know, we were founded to finance food co ops back in 1975, um, and and we've been financing all sorts of co ops uh, for those 45 years: worker co ops, housing co ops, etc. Um, about six years ago, we decided to focus much more on how we can deepen our racial equity work, our racial justice work. And so um, George Floyd's murder was unfortunately not a a game changer, not an awakening for us. Um, We've been doing a lot of studying and reflecting on our work and starting to, um, to, to really make some significant changes in how we do business to better advance racial justice. So can you tell us what are some of those things that you're doing? Sure, yeah. So I think about our work uh, as having three components. Uh, the first is lending component. We're primarily a lender. Uh, we're a community development financial institution. So we're a nonprofit lender. Uh, the second, and, and I can talk in a minute more about um, what how our lending has shifted. Um, the second bucket is what we call technical assistance. It's really supporting entrepreneurs and cooperative leaders and owners to run better businesses um, and to run better co-ops, both the human side and the business side. And then the third bucket of our work in this area is partnerships. We recognize that we cannot bring about uh, racial, social, and economic justice on our own um, that we bring some resources to the table and that we need strong partnerships to really get the full picture. So, so with, who, are,
0: the, who are some oh yeah, of those sorry. partners or how do you identify those partners?
1: Right. So, so with this um, shift in increased focus on racial equity, we've been thinking, we've, we've been talking a lot with organizations rooted in communities of color who are very excited about co-ops as being able to meet their own needs. And so some of those organizations include immigrant workers centers. They include faith-based community organizing alliances. Uh, they include Black Empowerment Economic Development Agencies. And so we're, we're looking around the region and seeing that, unfortunately, and, and there are structural reasons for this, a lot of the co-op development capacity in New England is coming from white communities, and that if communities of color are really going to succeed in their co-op development aspirations, then they need to have that own capacity internally. Um, and so, so we're talking with these community organizations to think about how can we, you know, forty-five-year-old loan fund with some resources help the partners build their own capacity and achieve their own goals
0: so before we go to lending components how much money do you have to loan with your asset base
1: uh, our assets right now are around 32 million we have about 25 million currently outstanding in our
0: loan portfolio so does that mean you subtract the 25 from the 32 and that means you have 7 million to loan it, it
1: means that we have um, $7 million. I think, actually, my numbers are a little low. It's, it's more like $10 million. That is a mix of money that we can lend today, but it's also some reserves. Um, anyone in the lending business knows that they're not going to get fully repaid everything that they loan, and yet we have obligations to our investors to repay them. So we need to maintain a cushion uh, to protect against the inevitable losses. Um, we've we've had actually a really strong repayment rate, but the past does not always predict the future, as we know.
0: Yep, we know that. So, what are your lending components that you are changing, transforming to help in these low income Black and Brown communities, marginalized communities? Yeah. So, so
1: there's sort of two two components to that. The first is thinking about our products, our loan products, and the second is thinking about our our processes. So on the loan product side, we recognize that the ability of black and brown entrepreneurs to access startup capital, that that critical launch capital to do early feasibility studies and and to cover expenses um, is, is really lacking in a lot of communities that in in white, predominantly wealthier entrepreneurs, they have friends and family networks where they can access those resources. And that's how a lot of startups happen, uh, credit card or family loans. Um, and in, in a lot of low-income communities, those resources just aren't there. That that doesn't mean that those communities don't have the, the brilliance that it needs to start strong businesses, uh, but they need some help with that early capitalization. And so we started what we're calling the co-op launch loan, which will cover, um, it'll finance pre-development expenses for communities where they've achieved some early success. They have a group of people, they have experience with what they want to do, you know, things are looking good, but there's still a lot more risk. Um, they haven't yet developed a full business plan. They haven't yet done all the things that we would normally need for them to be able to access our normal capital. And so we have this, yeah.
0: Miha, is, is there a way, uh, I mean, the sixth principle of co-op is cooperation among co-ops. So is there a way of working with other lending institutions, other in the CDI, FIs, or corporate development fund to help get grants to help with these startup funds?
1: Yeah, yeah grants are are definitely a big part of it that's how we capitalized our loan fund our the co-op launch loan and we also know that especially for early stage projects, debt is sometimes just not the right uh, capital um, that sometimes we do need grants and so that that's also something that we've done. Um, is create pass through grant programs. We currently don't have one in existence, but um, there have been funders who've been interested in us providing small grants of three to $5,000 to cover early legal expenses around incorporation, early board training, um, some small feasibility studies to help those projects get off the ground. And what's exciting is that now, three years later, we're seeing a lot of those early investments those early startup
0: co-op efforts start to come to fruition and open their doors. So later in the program, I'd like to talk to you about some of those specifically who they are, what types of co-ops they are and where they are in their process of starting up, whether they have one year experience, two years or whatever. And what's that success look like in the beginning stages? Okay. So one is the launch program. Um, Was there another, uh, Product that you were that you were doing besides the launch yeah we also have a, a
1: co- what we call the collateral support fund right so collateral is the the standard financial idea that if your business plans don't work out, then what's plan B for the lender to get repaid and so traditionally that might be an entrepreneur's house right their personal assets
0: or it would be the business assets. Can I say something here, sir? I'm I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off, Mika, but I have it that, and I I studied this in in my MBA program that traditional is what you just called, but bankers normally look for three things. They want three things back when they make a loan, and what they look for is how much net worth you have. What do you own? Okay, and how much do you own? more than what you owe, and that net worth, that worth that they say you are financial worth, is what they look for. So that if you don't pay the loan back, they can go get it. Okay. So the three things they look for, they want their money back, number one, they want their money back, number two, and they want their money back, number three. Okay? <laughs> so they do want this collateral, and then if you go and look at, I don't know, what is it for white families is $171,000 net worth, average, White family in the U.S. and the average black family is one-tenth of that, 71000 where if it's a single-family black woman head of household, is $6, right. okay, net worth. So yeah. th- there's a lot of folks that have negative net worth, whether a single family or couples, and therefore they can't get this startup loan. Got it. Okay. I just wanted to right, put Exactly. And, and just to put a
1: fine point on that, um, the Boston Federal Reserve, maybe two years ago, put out a paper showing that in Boston, I, I believe the numbers are the average white family has a quarter million dollars in net worth, and the average black family has, I want to say it was like $8. It was um, mind boggling. Uh, about wow.
0: the Federal Reserve. So check that out. So a quarter million is 250,000 of net worth in Boston for white families and 8,000 right. for black families. That's, that's a right. huge, that's a huger gap. Let me, that's bigger
1: than right. huge. Okay. Right. So uh, some of the areas that we're working in, this is um, this is a more extreme wealth divide. And, you know, we know how that undermines civil society in a lot of ways. So we, Raised what we call a collateral support fund, recognizing that a lot of uh, black and brown and other low income entrepreneurs don't have uh, the collateral, especially in service industry. Um, and especially because these are co-ops where we have shared ownership. Right. So a lot of different people own an equal stake in the venture. So we don't want to go after one person's house. We don't want to go after anyone's house. We're here for community development. We're here for justice. Um, and so we were able to find a way to sort of subsidize a uh, lack of collateral in otherwise strong projects.
0: So, so those are the products. What's, what are you doing in the process to, so, to help yeah, this the, lending component? The, the lending component,
1: um, part of which ties into partnerships that maybe we'll talk about later. But a big part is, is to really look at implicit bias, right? So any loan has an inherent risks that are real, and then because of the institutional racism that we're all fighting against, then a lot of loans for some people will have perceived extra risk because of the color of the entrepreneur of the applicant. Um, and so we're trying to weed that out
0: uh, so in our process. We're, we're going to take our first break. I'm sorry. i really enjoyed this conversation. Please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome back to Everything Cooperative. I'm talking to Miha Josepha from the Executive Director of the Community, the Cooperative Fund of New England. Miha has talked about um, that they have been in business for 45 years, and racial equity, racial justice has been a part of their mission from day one, and they really went after it six years ago to put more emphasis in it. And they've been uh, doing three things, looking at their lending component, their technical assistance, and their partnerships. And we were just talking about the products, and that was uh, startup capital uh, and uh, collateral support loans is what they're looking to get marginalized folks that don't have a high network folks, don't have collateral. And we were just beginning to talk about the process, and he was talking about implicit bias when we took the break. And I really wanted to hear this. I just took a class, Miha, this summer, a weekend class on implicit bias, and found out I have them. We all do. And what's interesting is folks don't know that they have them. And if they're not looking for it, they won't see it or if somebody doesn't point it out. So this implicit bias against race, I think there may be some very, very good folk out there. I'm talking about white particularly right now, that may not even know that they have these biases. So when they look at an application, they can't see their bias, that they put another level of risk on it because of the person is black or brown or native or from some country, whatever, that bias might be, or female They right. may have biases against. Okay, so you are looking at changing your process to take that into consideration. How do you do that? Yeah, so so part of it is awareness raising. Um, we've had
1: a series of trainings um, amongst our board and our staff um, to, to really better understand and, you know, it's a process, it's not an endpoint, but to better understand where the bias comes from and how to identify it. And to build a culture where if there's a suspicion within the loan committee that someone is Um, biased implicitly, to be able to say, hey, maybe this is going on. You know, it doesn't make you a terrible person, but like, let me ask a little more and let's understand if if that's what's happening and if it is, then we'll disregard it. And if it's not, if there is something real behind your concern, then
0: we really should all know that and take that into consideration. Yeah. Awareness in the training that I had this summer was. Number one, if you're not aware of implicit bias, because it's unconscious, implicit means unconscious, then you'll never see it. And you then keep turning down these loans or make it har- harder. And I was thinking of higher interest rates is what gets applied to those higher. higher
1: right, decisions. exactly. And that, that's that been one big change that we also made in the past couple of years was our policy around interest rate setting. It used to be that when we would look at a loan, then we would set a particular interest rate at each loan. And now what what we've shifted to is setting an interest rate organization-wide. There, there's a little flexibility in there, but the flexibility is, is very narrow. Um, and so the, the goal of that is to root out the potential for us to approve loans to black or, black or brown entrepreneurs, but then to actually charge them more, which is obviously against... Our mission, and you know the the direction that
0: society needs to be going. I have a bias. It's not unconscious; it's clear. I've done property management now for almost thirty years, and I've noticed that the credit scores seem to be really weighted against anybody that makes one late payment. Black or brown folk, okay? Poor people, yep. not just black or poor people. It seems to be highly weighted against folks that may make a 30-day late, 60-day late night. Don't get a collection on it. It really goes down. And all of that does, I have it, and this is my bias, that the reason the credit scores are the way they are is so that the lender can charge a higher interest rate. That's my bias. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my belief system. And you're taking that away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're taking that away both at the interest rate setting level, but also, again, going back to the fact that co-ops have shared ownership across a broad number of people. um, We actually don't check credit scores at all, which is unusual for small business lenders. I think it's common within the co-op sector, again, because of the shared ownership. But um, it would not be valuable for us to check the credit of 20 different workers. What do we do with that then? We're, we're financing the business. We're not financing individuals. So we just take credit scores off the table. Um, stepping back to the personal guarantee question, or to the collateral question, we also, with very few exceptions, take a personal guarantee requirement totally off the table, again, because of the shared ownership model of cooperatives.
0: Well, you must have terrible return rates. I mean, you must have failures up to yang yang when you don't you don't make people sign, you don't get the collateral and you charge lower interest rates. I mean, you must be losing money hands over fifth I mean that's terrible
1: yeah, so <laughs> over forty five years um, we've lost one and a half percent of the money that we've lent out which is which is incredibly low
0: by industry yes. standards. Do you uh, have a sense I of what think- industry, industry standard is, just at the comparison?
1: Uh, not at my fingertips. Uh, I want to say it's, it's like five or six in the CDFI industry and um, probably higher outside. You know, people talk about extractive finance, which, you know, one, one level of that is finance, where the lender is not invested in your success. If you have enough collateral, then they'll be happy for your business to fail, and then they'll collect on your house. And, um, and that's not what community development financial institutions or CFNE
0: are in the game for. So you're in the game to help people to be successful. You're in the game, and the game that you all created 45 years ago is to help with social, economic, and racial justice, and by working in and low-income communities to do that.
1: Yeah. And through wow. cooperatives, I, it, it's about creating collective opportunity, shared opportunity, where individual opportunity is lacking. That—that's the power of cooperatives, as I
0: see it. And so, with one and a half percent losses, that says that there's ninety-eight point five percent success. Yeah, I'd much rather talk about that. That's. <laughs> 98.5, almost, that rounds to 99%. Okay, anything that's 99, if you bet at 99, you'd be making billions of dollars if you bet at that high. Right, I mean, right. Wow. And,
1: and again, that's because awesome. we talked earlier about that cushion to protect against those losses, investors have never lost any money uh, by investing in us.
0: Okay. So if I have some money, I know to invest invested between you and Shared Capital and other CDFIs. Because I've gotten the same results from Christina Jennings at Shared Capital. And I didn't know if you all do any shared uh, loans or anything. But yes. it's, it's the same kind of response. And I was thinking that the, it was like 9% the average for the market of losses. But I don't know that number. I don't remember it. I, I've been told that number. yeah, Okay, so... Lending component, products and processes, technical assistance, running better businesses. You help people run better business because you want them to be successful. If they're successful, they can pay back the loans. Everybody can create better economic and social and financial wealth. So you meet your mission and you help your lenders, I mean, whoever invests in you. You can pay them back their money. Yep. Wow. That sounds like a great model. Why doesn't everybody do that? But anyway, talk about the technical assistance. <laughs> sure. Sure. So
1: um, historically, we were fairly laser focused on lending. And so historically, our technical assistance was really around getting you loan ready, getting, getting, helping you assemble the loan application package and understand all the components. And then if, Uh, there's a downturn and you're struggling as a borrower, we would also provide technical assistance to help you do a turnaround. Um, And you can see the obvious self-interest there, as well as the mission interest. And what we noticed was even with the uh, creativity that we applied to our loan products, we were not getting a huge pipeline of applications from black and brown communities. And it wasn't because the interest wasn't there. There's. We know there are tons of community organizations that we're talking to who have that interest, but there was a gap between the interest and being able to submit that loan application um, that was not being filled. Um, USDA provides a lot of federal resources for co-op development in rural communities, but in, in urban communities, in black and brown communities, there's no similar federal program to boost co-op development. Um, and so we realized that we needed to step into that and help fill that gap. So do you have people on staff that help with the
0: technical assistance?
1: Yeah. So, so we hired a, a really amazing uh, co-op business support officer, Carolyn Etzel, is her name. Um, and we did that about a year and a half ago. And so we've now created a vision for what we want
0: this department to look like. And we're now trying to build that out. So, just real quickly, you've been working for 45 years. You're really looking and focused on uh, economic justice, uh, equity. You've created lending component, technical assistance, and partnerships. We'll talk a little bit more when we come back for our second break on the partnerships. But I really want to get into some of the real examples of what it is that you are doing. Okay, we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is everything cooperative, and Mika Josephi is our guest today from the Cooperative Fund of New England. Mika, your mission is very similar to the National Coop Bank's mission. National Coop Bank NCB has sponsored this program for will be seven years this. October next month we celebrate seven years, so next month is when we in month of October we got started. That's co-op month and that's when my my birth month. So it's great things happen in October. (laughs) NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives. You are your mission is to be an advocate for cooperatives in New England. And especially in low-income communities, just like your mission, by providing innovative financial and related service, just like your mission. So your mission in NCB missions is like right on, they're just right in there. So early on, you talked about you have made loans to food co-ops, housing co op worker co-ops. And I just want to tell people out there, the four different co-op sectors. It depends on who owns and control it. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's a worker cooperative, and that could be any business. If it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the product or service, it's a consumer co-op, and that's housing co-ops, which Miha talked about, credit unions, food co-ops. Food co-ops could be a consumer co-op or a worker co-op, or it could be a combination. And if a group of people get together to purchase products and services to get lower prices, um, then it's called a purchasing co-op. And a lot of farmers, artists are using that noun. And if a group of people or businesses get together to market their products or services, it's called a marketing co-op, or sometimes it's called a producer co-op. Farmer co-ops like Cabot Creamery, Lando Lakes, Ocean Spray, and artists like Ujama in Pittsburgh are t- examples of marketing co-ops. So the Cooperative Fund of New England provides money for all of these different kind of co-ops. And you mentioned food, housing, and worker so you got three of them right there, two of them. Yep. So I wanted to talk to you about partnership, which is your third leg of what you've been doing to make sure that there's racial equity, racial justice, and that's the partnership. We talked about lending components, technical assistance. So tell us about what you're doing with partnerships, and then I want to move over to talk about some examples of these co-ops that you've been working with. Sure.
1: So, you know, CFNE is that an interesting uh, place in the co-op development ecosystem in that we're a regional organization. We work across the six New England states and parts of New York. So we're not local. We're not national, and we're we're sort of a mid-sized lender. So you mentioned the bank. One of the great partnerships that we've been able to have over the years is um, working with the bank to support the worker co-op sector. Now the worker co-op sector is. One of the smaller sectors, both overall size of the sector, but also the size of the average business. You know, you have, you definitely have cooperative home care associates in New York, which I believe has over 2000 home care, uh, attendance worker owners of that business. And then you also have a lot of um, under 10 worker owner worker co-ops, so pretty small. So, Eco yeah, Exchange has about 150 workers. Think, exactly. Yeah. And, and there are a number okay. of cab companies around the country also that are cooperatively owned by their, their drivers, who are their workers, um, that are also on the higher end of, of the spectrum. But one of the things that NCB has helped us do is provide resources so that we can help cultivate a stronger worker co op field. Um, so that the worker co-op sector can can get elevated in size and impact to the level of the housing co-op sector and the food co-op sector and the rural utilities, et cetera. Um, so they've been really important, supporting us and supporting some of the other community development co-op oriented lenders like Shared Capital, like Leaf, and others in the field. So that that's one example. Thinking from us. To bigger organizations. Now, where we're trying to go deep is how can we partner with local community organizations rooted in black and brown communities? And and so some of the plans that we've developed, and right now we're in the process of raising resources for these. Hopefully, you know, I'll I'll come back on the show in a couple of years and be able to talk more about the amazing
0: wins that we've had. Uh, but really I'm thinking, thinking six months. I'm thinking six months, not two years, okay? <laughs> <Six> <laughs> I want to hear the results. <laughs> I love it.
1: it it's, it's really thinking about train-the-trainer programs. So how can we take the, the learned experience in the national and regional co-op development field and use it to build the capacity of local co-op developers in the immigrant worker centers, in the um, the black business uh, community in the faith based community organizing networks so that it's not predominantly white people coming in and saying, you know, this is how you should do it. But so that we can take their experience, but then really the on the ground knowledge of how the community works and what works in in urban low income communities to knock it out of the park. We know that we don't know all those answers.
0: And so through partnerships, we're hoping to build that. So I was at a conference, um, an up-and-coming conference somewhere in the cold part of the country. And and up-and-coming is for startups for food co-ops around the U.S. And there's 200 people at this conference, maybe 300. It's large size. But I, I was in one of the sessions, and the black gentleman from Detroit and another one from Flint, Michigan Several in the room were talking about all of the whites are up front giving the lessons, and more often than not, they don't understand the culture that is in Detroit or Flint in the neighborhood, and they'd like to see more black folk in those talking, and it could be them even. Because they're in there, they've been sometimes four, five, six, seven years getting a startup, and some of those could be leading those programs. So I get what you're talking about. If you can get into the neighborhoods and get people that can talk, and that's what I learned at teaching, too. I found that the students were better teachers than me as a professor because they could talk the language, okay, and they could get people right. to, to see it. So, yeah, okay, that's phenomenal. Yeah, I'm, and, I wish and- you great success in that.
1: Thanks. And, and really, there's there's a real
0: core question of resources
1: here. You know, there's, there's an immigrant workers center that we work with that's been really aspiring to do co-op development because every day they're dealing with wage theft. They're dealing with their community members who are roofers falling off of the roof and breaking their legs. And these are short-term crises that they're forced to respond to. They know that the long-term solution is a worker co-op. But They don't have the resources to to do both deal with the short term crises and lay the groundwork for the longer term solution. And so as a more established, better resourced organization, we're trying to think of how can we use our position to funnel resources to some of
0: these community groups um, so that they can achieve their goals. Phenomenal. And then how can we in this co-op world support you in doing that? there's cooperation among co-ops in its sixth principle. Okay. So can you give me some examples of either startups or converting from existing businesses, particularly when baby boomers like me want to get out and then they can transfer it over to their employees who own it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love the, the reality that conversions are making. The fact that a lot of businesses are going to be transferring in the past five years, in the next 10 years because of the generational shift and that that's really being accelerated, unfortunately, by the pandemic, because now some of the older business owners, they don't want to wait three years for a recovery. They want to be done. And so we're seeing uh, definitely more interest in conversions in succession of business ownership to the workers through a co-op. So we have helped 21 businesses over the past 10 years convert to worker co-ops. Um, all but one are still in business. So we're really excited wow. about that. Yeah. A few of those businesses really align with the racial equity goals. But one of them is a story that I love to tell. It's a landscaping company in the west suburbs of Boston. It was founded by, by a baby boomer, by a white uh, baby boomer. And she built the business largely with uh, Salvadoran immigrants as her workforce. Um, And so after 26 years, she had a workforce of 20 people. Uh, She had a loyal customer base, but but she was done. She was ready to enjoy her retirement. And so we helped the workers form a co-op. And then we helped finance the sale of that business to the COA. So they they started with 20 people. Last I checked in, and this was six years ago, uh, they've hired eight more workers. They've tripled their net income and their revenues have grown, uh, have almost doubled. They've grown by 82%. And in addition to those kind of quantitative measures of success, there's also just the stories that we hear about. The increased dignity that people have as owners of their business, um, the access to personal development, professional development, uh, leadership development that co-ops create is really critical for building the
0: world that we're trying to build. So did you get a sense of what an individual of those 20 start off with, what their income was? Was it six years ago when they started? Yep. And what it yep. is now with both their salary or hourly wages plus the dividends and that profit of three times the that income, that profit? What that do they share? How they might share that and all that? Yeah, I I don't
1: have those numbers right in front of me, but when I saw them, their pace of wage growth outpaced national wage growth and outpaced field work wage growth over that period of time by I remember being impressed by the number and I just don't have it in front of me. Mm -hmm. And then it was the dollars that those workers reinvested in the co-op through their capital accounts uh, was in the six figures, right? So hundreds of thousands of dollars that the workers ownership share in the business is now worth. Um, and, and those are both metrics that you would never come near if the business continued to be a sole proprietor.
0: Um, that's, so that's, folks you know, from El Sabado, yeah. folks from El Sabado, my brown brothers and sisters speak Spanish. Maybe, that, maybe a lot of them still only speak Spanish. They're working doing landscaping. And in property management, I've hired Hernandez and Daughters but it's owned by Mr. Hernandez and he would probably pass it on to his daughter. So Hernandez gets the money. Now he's, he's, he was, I think Salvadoran also, but he gets the money and not those workers. So now is all of those workers get that money and they double their income, double their income. At like, and then three times their net income, that's that profit stuff. And they get to share that. That's that, Second principle or third principle. They have money, the money they put in a few dollars to become members, and when and if they're the profit, they get to say what happens to that profit. It's ph- That's why I like this model. That's why I love this model for racial equity, racial justice. We're going to take our final break, and why over the break, if you could think of a few more of these, I'd appreciate it. And the last question I'll ask you is, two, do you like your job? And what message would you like to leave people with? So you could think about that during this break. And then uh, we'll come back, everybody. Um, please don't touch that dial. And we'll come back with me and get some more information. everybody this is vernon oaks and the program is everything cooperative uh we're talking to miha josefi and he's the executive director of cooperative fund of new england he's been only doing that for maybe 10 years but the cooperative fund of new england has been around for 45 years and they have been doing a lot in those 45 years at least their mission was for racial social economic justice and they've been doing a lot in the last six years to look at how to do that what might be implicit biases and how you overcome that and awareness is the main thing in that one and how do you can change the processes and the products to help people get these loans working through and with partners so we were just talking about a landscaping company, and then what are some other examples sir
1: so we uh, we helped finance a food co-op in Providence, Rhode Island called urban greens this This food co-op effort developed in what's called a food desert uh, so an area where people don't have access to healthy food, maybe you know they get a lot of their grocery access from convenience stores or it's a real hassle to go across town to go to a grocery store. Uh, so this was an effort that started about a little over 10 years ago uh, to build a full scale grocery store in Providence. Uh, they just opened about a year ago, and and it's been really exciting to see how they've turned, you know, this lemon of a pandemic, right? You know, the pandemic's put a lot of stress um, on communities, on essential workers, including grocery store workers, um, and and they've really been able to leverage the community ownership aspect of the co-op to say, yeah, we're we're really putting the health and well-being of our members and our workers first and foremost, not just our members, our customers broadly, right? Because you don't need to be a member to shop there, even though it, it helps the co-op. And so we're seeing a lot of food co-ops across the region, really thriving, really, really leveraging the community ownership and uh, show that in a time of crisis, co-ops really have a leg up and are really a critical part of our economic infrastructure.
0: So were there brown and black members in this food desert in the the community?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a diverse community. Um, So it's a their board. You know, you can go to their website, UrbanGreens.com. They have a diverse board, um, including, I think I just saw that there are four four newly elected board members. Three or four of them um, are black or brown, are people of color. Um, Great. So so it's it's really exciting. I think another example that I would give is going back to the conversion space, um, thinking about in- In rural Maine, so Maine is the oldest uh, state in the country. It's also the not not as in the first state, but their population, the people are the oldest. Oh, Especially in rural Maine. You know, there are a couple of urban parts of the state, but in in rural Maine, central Maine, where the economy really had been focused on natural resources, on on lumber and the mills. um, And that's really taken a nosedive. Then there's real concern for um, how will the economy continue when you know the the workforce is aging, there's not a lot of new investment and so we what we've seen in again in partnership this time with a group called the Cooperative Development Institute, um, we've seen a real uptick in interest in co-op conversions, so preserving critical businesses in rural maine. Through selling those businesses to their workers. Um, so, you know, one of those businesses, um, WJ Wheeler, is an insurance company. And, you know, we, we definitely see mutual insurance as one of the co op sectors, but um, this is a, an insurance broker. This is a business that had been in the family for five generations, I believe. Wow. A you know, long time. Um, for business in that community, and, and the next generation just wasn't interested in picking it up. And that's that's really a common reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were one of the groups, earlier in this conversation we talked about pass-through grants, they were one of the groups that we helped provide a small grant to so that they could access uh, some legal help around forming the co-op.
0: Um, so that, that help went to the, the employees. The, that grant went to the employees so that they could get help to see how they could buy that. Exactly. That's
1: correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so just last year, we financed, we provided the financing for the worker co-op to buy the business and they're, they're doing great. It took some time because education takes time, right? Training people to think like owners when all their life, they've been thinking like workers alone um, takes time and it needs patience, but now this business that had been around for, you know, five generations, now
0: has a future, which is very exciting. And so is that a mixed group of employees too?
1: Um, no, I think that the, that's a white co-op, but it's uh, predominantly women, actually. The the workforce is a majority women
0: workforce. Um, uh, I assume that's mainly, a, mainly administration type of things. If it's a broker, they're doing policies and so forth. Yeah, working yeah. with different that's insurance right. companies. That's right. You got yeah, one more. They,
1: well, just just going back to um, to urban greens for a second, I just want to point out that the development of a food co-op, you know, it takes takes a community to raise a kid. It takes a community to to build a food co-op and not just the community of member owners, but also um, the infrastructure of um, the co-op associations, both at the regional level and the national level, provide a lot of that technical assistance for the food co-op sector. So just want to mention national uh, cooperative grocers at the national level and uh, neighboring food co-op association at the regional level as being really important to support urban greens and the other food co-ops that are starting up.
0: So I just want to go back. You said something about dignity. And uh, on this show six, seven years ago, Dame Pauline Green, who was the president of International Cooperative Alliance says, that co-ops help people come out of poverty with dignity. So it not only helps with the financial, social, and all of that, but it really helps with a person's view of themselves, just brings out other pieces. And another piece is Dr. Jessica gordon Hart's book, Collective Carriage. And she talks about blacks uh, in the co-op world and, and throughout time. Uh, and then in there she said that, Ninety percent of co-ops are in business after five years. We're in a capitalist business is only ten percent are in business after five years. And the reason there is is that time you talked about, that's what made me think about the time for education. Okay, so you they get educated as a group and so there's shared experience, shared skills, and then there's connection with the community. So the community wants it to survive and the lenders want it to survive. So it, it makes it be successful once they get up now some of them don't get started they find out it's not a good business or they're not right for them and that's good <laughs> okay yeah. and they learn there's a continue learning right do you like what you do sir i love what i do
1: i feel very lucky i come out of a community organizing background and i shied away from that because that was a lot of people time <laughs> and then i went mm. into a nonprofit financial management track. And uh, that was a lot of spreadsheets. (laughs) And, and I found that in, in the job that I'm in, um, being able to mix the people and the spreadsheets for a social good to create a humane economy that we need more desperately now than
0: ever. uh, I feel very blessed. So what would you like to leave? I, I, that's exactly what most people have been on this show, and that's the other thing. For young people, I want them to hear, if you want a job that really you like going to work, you get up excited about it, then you want to look at this co-op world or, or and I'll start a business in it. What would you like to leave people with?
1: You know, this this is a difficult time for a lot of people, um, and there is a lot of hope. And I think that we can really see that by looking in the at the cooperative sector. And everyone has a role to play in growing the cooperative sector.
0: Um, and so
1: I just want to encourage folks to, to think about what your role
0: might be in doing that. So I was listening to the Movement for Black Lives, their annual meeting, Friday night, I think it was, and one person in Seattle said that they have a program, co-ops instead of cops. So put money into co-ops uh, instead of in, instead of cops. Well, sir, I really would like to see you on again. I like what you're talking about. Um, You pretty much hit all of the seven principles in this conversation today. We didn't have the time to lay them out, but we talked about them all. And I really enjoy talking to you, and I want to do it again. As soon as we can get you back on, as soon as you've got some more examples of these conversions, we'll do it. Everybody out there, please have a great week.
1: Thank thank you so much, Vernon, for the opportunity. Uh, This has been great. All right, sir.
0: Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. Live cooperatively. Your news talk station.